And welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, your host. You can follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY and Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, on Facebook uh, for my instant analysis of stories as they happen. But there's three things I want to talk about this week that are things that are going on now. They, they are current events, but as usual here on Novak Now, I like to add what I hope to be a more enduring analysis, something that not only helps us understand what's happening at the moment, but helps us prepare for similar things to happen again, or for things that might begin to happen as we see the building blocks or something similar as well. Um, The big news that I've been following for the last week or so has, of course, been this basic breakdown in the U.S.-China trade talks. We had gotten to a point for several months, really, where we had been told that the the talks had been going well and that they were near a final deal. And there were some people who said that even Friday, uh, May 10th, was likely to be a day where there would be a deal struck, at least some kind of tentative deal struck, and that would end the the long-talking parts of the negotiations and there would just be formalization to go on. And, of course, what happened in the weekend before that, the weekend of May 3rd, was the the Chinese coming in and saying that they were basically backing down. They sent a memorandum to the United States, basically backing out of almost everything that they had agreed to in the previous year's worth of negotiations. Um, That included their promises to buy uh, additional U.S. farm goods. That included some of their promises to back away from blatant intellectual property theft, the list goes on. And that induced an immediate response from President Trump to increase the tariffs on basically most of Chinese imports into this country from 10 to 25%. And now there is a threat from President Trump to put a 25% tariff on every single import into the United States in the coming uh, days or weeks. And, you know, look, this entire tariff battle that's been going back and forth between China and the United States. There's a couple of small basics to remember before you get into the pros and cons of right versus wrong on this. One is that China basically imports the United States on a three or four to one level to the United States. So in other words, if China blocks our imports, there's only so far they can go before it really stops making an impact. And it's already done that as far as uh, U.S producers, U.S. exporters sending stuff to China. We don't really send very much to China. China doesn't buy very much uh, uh, foreign goods, at least not from the United States. Whereas their goods coming into this country, if their American market is curtailed as it has been in a significant way, China's economy really, really starts to hurt immediately, and that's what's happened with China. Their, Their economy has started to slow tremendously over the last year. Their manufacturing is down. And they're dealing with all kinds of issues there, but for some reason they still felt, and I'm going to talk about the reasons, some reason they still felt that they could play this brinksmanship game starting uh, last week where they could felt like they could back out of everything and maybe get an even better deal for themselves somehow or maybe get the United States. Perhaps they felt President Trump was desperate to say that he had made a deal of some kind and that he would not impose higher tariffs and he would agree to some kind of very small deal and use his usual bluster to turn it into sounding like something bigger. And I think this was a big miscalculation on their part. But I wanted to talk about where this is coming from and I wanted to talk about China's behavior. One of the themes that I'm going to hit during today's program 
a number of times, is the fallacy of pre-Trump happiness. <laughs> you know, we're seeing a tremendous effort, mostly by people who are staunchly against President Trump, whether they're in the Democratic Party or from other liberal groups, um, or from career, from the Republican side or, or the more conservative side, those few who are opposing Trump from that side, they tend to be career Washington politician, diplomat types, as the Trump supporters call them, the swamp. Of course, that includes Democrats, too. But what you see from uh, uh, one of the messages they sometimes say implicitly and sometimes quite explicitly, explicitly, is they say, they, they, they promote this message that, bef- that pre- things were really doing pretty generally well before President Trump came along. He's made things bad. Before, good. Post-Trump, you know, during Trump, bad. Which is, you know, just incredibly ludicrous on a lot, a lot of levels. Um, we already were at a $20 trillion deficit, a debt, sorry, before he came in. We had already had disastrous wars in the Middle East that did not really achieve the greatest results before President Trump. We already had economic issues here in this country that, you know, a, a manufacturing base that had gone away, an issue with college debt that was out of control, health care costs that were out of control, uh, a border issues that were out of control well before President Trump. And we also had a news media that promoted the bad news, even when their friendly presidents that they liked were, were in office. I mean, take a look at the general tone of news during the Barack Obama presidency, and it wasn't, it wasn't happy, happy talk. They certainly didn't blame it on Barack Obama, but they talked about racism in this country, economic problems in this country, uh, terrorism. I mean, really, honestly, the list goes on and on. It has nothing to do with President Trump coming along and making things bad when things were great before. That's, that's something that you really have to remember. You, you, we're hearing this fallacy come through a, a lot. And this, comes, and this is very much the case with China trade. China, for many, many years, has been hurting the United States with a trade imbalance. Now, how do I mean by trade imbalance? Because the free traders among us, and I consider myself mostly a free trader, the free traders will say there's no such thing as you can't hurt anybody with the trade imbalance. If you have free, totally free and open trade, uh, it doesn't really hurt anybody because the consumers get what they want and the producers, making they're just making what people are demanding. That's all. The problem with that is that that's true on our side of the fence. We had a basically open trade policy in this country. But the Chinese consumers aren't getting what they want. There's exports in the United States and most other countries are completely blocked in China. And when they're not blocked, it's because American companies have gone there and set up shop there under the very watchful eye and under the very strict rules of the Chinese government. And they've had their products either stolen, their intellectual property stolen, their profits highly capped. But American companies keep hoping that this huge Chinese market, and after all, it is the most populated country in the world, will somehow one day pay off for them. And for a lot of cases, you know, there's some small-term payoff. There's a short-term payoff, as I mean to say. And then there's hope that there'll be a real, real longer-term payoff, a real longer-term return on the investment of giving up so much to go to China and to set up factories there and, and the like. And this continues to be an issue that's been around for, for many decades. But there's another caveat to this that has to be considered, and I want everyone listening to remember this very, very carefully. This backing out of the deal that China did 
last week or the week before. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. China has reneged and broken every single trade deal it's ever made with anybody in the last 50 years, particularly the United States. They've broken the promises that they've made many, many times. And they've also, again, continued a policy of intellectual property theft. If you're a company that comes into China, they are going to take your patented ideas. And even if you're not coming into China, they've made many, many efforts to use straight-up bribes to get spies and companies to take intellectual property if they're in the United States or in Europe, or now technology with spyware and other types of technological spying equipment. They're doing that. And they routinely bribe U.S. officials. They routinely bribe prominent Americans to do their bidding and to speak, talk them up. And it has to be considered, considering the amount of business that Joe Biden's son has done in China. He's done business in other foreign countries as well. But for Joe Biden earlier this month to discuss how China really isn't a threat, and I'm sure he'll backtrack on that and he'll talk about how he really didn't mean that. We're going to have a lot of walking back from Joe Biden on that China comment that he made where he said China really isn't a threat to us. But it's very, very bad news when somebody like Joe Biden, who's the front runner for the Democratic presidential nomination, says something like that. And we know that his son has done tremendous number of lucrative deals with the Chinese government. They're not stupid. You know, the, the best way to bribe and to influence officials in Washington, elected officials or appointed officials, is to employ or make business deals with their spouses and their families. This is a long standing tradition. And don't for a minute think this is just a Joe Biden Democratic Party thing. This is something that affects the Republicans. This is something that affects everybody in Washington. The spouses of officials in Washington, of elected officials, have an incredible record of great uh, jobs and great business dealings. It's amazing. It's really the the, the tremendous luck that they seem to have. Getting high-paying jobs is really out of this world. Of course, I'm being facetious here. This is all by design. And I've said earlier, several months ago, when Amazon announced it was going to split its headquarters between New York and Washington, D.C. area, of course, they've backed out of New York now, but they're still going to do the Washington, D.C. area second headquarters. And I mentioned here on Novak Now that, of course, this made all the sense in the world. They need to employ employ and ingratiate themselves with with the Washington power elite. And I promise you, promise you, promise you that a good number of the best jobs at Amazon, at that second headquarters, will be given to the wives and spouses and, and, and uh, children and relatives of elected and high-level appointed officials in Washington. That's going to happen. That's how it works. And China is very, very astute at that, and they do that quite a bit. And this is what they've done. So, so I just want to m- make a little short list here of what we're dealing here with, 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 with China here. They've broken every trade deal, they steal intellectual property, and they bribe people. And for those of you who are fans of Star Trek The Next Generation, I just want you to, to think about which character on Star Trek Generation would have, a, and what com- would have a comment about that and what that comment would be. I'll give you three seconds. And if you guessed Worf would say, they have no honor, you are correct. The Chinese government and the Chinese leaders and the leadership in general in China, for many decades now, has no honor. 
And believe me, I am not saying that the governments of Europe, the governments of the United States, you name it, always have honor, or even mostly honorable all the time. I'm not saying that. But China has none. They have no honor. They are not being honest when they make deals. They break them. They are stealing stuff that is not their own. And they are bribing people to cover it up and to continue being able to behave this way. And one of the things that I've noticed... (laughs) Over many years, both in personal and political observations, and I think many of you listening have probably had the same experience that I have. When people or governments do not act honorably, time after time after time, I have found it to be a result of some kind of victimization, some kind of victimhood. And usually it's quite justified. A kid is bullied. I'm going to start at the very ground level there. A kid is bullied on the schoolyard for a couple of weeks or for a couple of days. And then he, in turn, becomes a belligerent and bullying kid. We know this scenario. I think most school bullies tend to be easy targets for bullying themselves if and when they are not bullying. So either they've been bullied themselves, which turns them into a bullying factor, person themselves, or they are preemptively bullying because they're worried about getting bullied. The meanest, nastiest kid in my last few years of summer camp, I'm not going to name the summer camp, was this short, incredibly overweight, unattractive kid who was preemptively bullying everybody. Almost everybody. And that was his, his thing. I don't know if he was preemptively bullying only in camp or if he had been bullied before, but that's the way it worked. Now, where does China fit in with this? Well, first of all, let's get to the many years that China was bullied. <laughs> I'm going to use the word bullied, but let's be honest. It was genocide. Japan, during the 1930s, and going through World War II, committed horrific acts against China. They conquered the country, they occupied it, and they committed unbelievable atrocities. And for those of us who grew up learning about the Holocaust, you know, look, it's one of the things that used to irk me when I was in high school. I had no problem learning Holocaust history in high school. First of all, it was history, and I enjoyed learning all kinds of history, even though it was an unpleasant (laughs) series of facts with the Holocaust. But I used to always asked some of my teachers who, if we could also spend some time talking about some other genocides. Not genocides that were so far off in the distance that we couldn't really learn about them. But one of the things that people in this country have not learned enough about are the Japanese, Japanese war crimes and the genocides that they, they committed. And I think um, it's important to read some of the books about that if you have not, especially, especially what the Japanese did in China during World War II. And before that, of course, you had a long history in the 19th century and early, and early 20th century of European powers coming in, in chi- to China and taking advantage of a leadership in that country that had broken down and the looting of that country in some ways by Britain, even the United States to some extent. Read up, read up about the Boxer Rebellion and find out about some of the factors that worked into there. The point I'm trying to make here is that China went through many decades and maybe even more than a century of getting bullied. And... I have no doubt in my mind that their reasoning, their excuse for their lack of honor now over several decades now is, bec- is, that, is, just very, is just that. They will go to their people or go to monk- talk amongst themselves about how they were treated by Japan, by Britain, by others for many, many years. And they feel like this exonerates them, this excuses them from any level of honorable activity or honorable conduct. 
They can cheat on trade deals. They can steal people's property. They can bribe folks because they are not only responding to a bullying and a, and a genocide and a, and a mistreatment of many decades in the past, but they want to avoid that happening again. Now they're going to be the bullies. And we've seen this again and again and again in history, but a lot in modern history. And it doesn't always have to be governments. So I'm going to turn now to Israel. Because despite the fact that the Israel haters out there, especially in Europe, this is a very big narrative in Europe. The Israel, the Israel haters, especially in Europe, like to use that, term, that, that reasoning that I just used to ex- explain China's, China's conduct, and they like to apply it to Israel. In Israel's case, it's not true. It's an unfair characterization. But hold on for a minute. I'm not, I'm not going to exonerate the whole of the Jewish people. This is not going to be a complete apology for the Jewish people on this topic. But in the case of Israel, despite the fact that Israel pursued and was able to secure reparations from Germany and other countries, and despite the fact that Israel is very much ensconced in remembering and focusing on the results of the Holocaust and the continuing reverberations. Of course, we've just gotten through a week in Israel where we go through Holocaust Memorial Week, and then it goes the following week to Yom Hazikaron Memorial Day for the soldiers. And there was a great um, meme, as we say, or for those of you who don't know that kind of social media terminology, just a little like poster that was going around online last week that was fantastic, saying, you know, Yom HaShoah, we have Yom Hazikaron in Israel to, to remind us of soldiers who sacrifice their lives for us. And then we have, you know, of course, we have Yom HaShoah a week before to remind us what happens if we don't have those kinds of soldiers. So as big as the sacrifice of dying on the, on, on the battlefield has been for their families and loved ones in the state of Israel over, the, over its many wars in its 71-year history, the, the other choice is Yom HaShoah, where we all go on to, at, like lambs to the slaughter. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting juxtaposition, and I think a good one. But despite the fact that Israel certainly is not ignoring the Holocaust, and the Holocaust and its results are, are really a part of daily life in Israel, Israel has not used the Holocaust to become a residual bully, as much as the Europeans and, again, other people who hate Israel like to think. If that were the case, the Israelis would be genocidal, would be a genocidal country. And of course, they're not genocidal, as we've talked about a number of times, both on this program, and I'm sure you've heard it elsewhere. The Palestinian population has exploded in numbers since the creation of the state of Israel. So far from, it's the opposite of genocide. The situation in Israel, despite some of the issues that definitely face the Arab population, both in Israel proper and in the territories of Gaza and in the West Bank, it's still generally better than just about the rest everywhere else in the Arab world. And so they've, po- they've, they've multiplied, and many of them have prospered. <laughs> it could be a lot better. The leadership, especially in Gaza, doesn't want that, prosper- doesn't want that prosperity. It doesn't even want its people multiplying. They're very, very happy to, to kill their own people, to get their own people killed for a short PR victory in, in a newspaper somewhere in Europe. But the fact is, there is no genocide. Israel has not become a bully, despite the fact that the Jews have been bullied for so long and were so recently extremely bullied by the Holocaust. Not in Israel. So that is not left to residual bullying. But again, I, I told you, I wasn't going to exonerate the whole of the Jewish people. Because here in the United States, and to some extent, and, and to a large extent in Israel as well, there is a population of Jews who act without honor, 
And they use the Holocaust and they use other cases of Jewish victimization, victimization of Jews, I mean, not by Jews. They use other cases of Jews being bullied as an excuse for their lack of honor. Now, I'm not here to castigate the entire Haredi community, both here in the United States and in Israel, but when it comes to issues of welfare, when it comes to issue of issues of employment, when it comes to issue of issues of, yes, military participation, the Haredi community, for the most part, has acted without honor. Here in New York State, where I live, and many of you listening live, the ethnic group that is on welfare the most next to the African-American community is the Haredi Jewish community. That is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. It would be acceptable if there were no schooling. It would be acceptable if these were all single-parent families, but neither is the case. And on many occasions when I brought this up and talked about the welfare fraud and the other issues that are going on in the Haredi community here in New York City, I've often been rebuffed with this, well, it's the only way they can survive and they went through the Holocaust and it's so terrible we should excuse them. And the answer is no, we don't. We don't excuse them. You don't lose your responsibility for honor just because your previous generations or even you yourself were bullied. It doesn't, doesn't count. I'm sorry. Can't do that. Now, when most people, when you hear criticism to the Haredi community, it's usually from one of two groups. One, out-and-out anti-Semites, or two, very, very secular Jews. And to be honest with you, I sympathize with the Haredi community when it comes to that leaf of the page, leaf of the book, that page in the book. I don't think that out-and-out anti-Semites and fiercely secular Jews who don't like religion anyway criticize the Haredi community over anything because they're just not coming from a place where they have an excuse to do so. It's just, it doesn't work for me. But what is disappointing is when we see Torah-observant Jews, either in the modern Orthodox community or in other slightly more religious communities, keeping their mouth shut about what they know what's going on in more religious communities. Now, listen, a lot of those modern Orthodox and yarmulke-wearing, mitzvot-observing Jews have voted with their feet on this. And by that, I mean... Instead of just marching and getting upset about Haredim not going into the army or, not, or cheating welfare systems, either in Israel or in the United States, they're living their lives in a very exemplary way. I mean, the number of yarmulke-wearing, Torah-observant, high-level officers in the Israeli army who have absolutely reinvigorated the Israeli army over the last decade or so is incredible. It's incredible. It saved, it saved the, the officer corps of the Israeli Defense Forces in a lot of estimations. You, you had an officer rod in the Israeli Defense Forces based on old Labor Party um, nepotism and corruption. And this new blood, as almost always the case is with new blood, if they are coming from a deserving place, they, they've re- revitalized and improved the IDF. And I believe that the modern Orthodox in New York, for all of the problems that they face, for the most part, are living exemplary lives. <laughs> it's not easy what they're trying to do, the life they're trying to lead, to live in this area, New York City, and its, and its immediate suburbs, and to send your kid to a day school because you feel that that's the most important thing to do, to give them a Jewish education every day. It, it's not easy. It's not easy financially. It's not easy culturally. The whole nine yards. I get it. But they're the ones who need to speak up about this more. And again, we need to remember that The reason why people act without honor in almost every single case is because they feel entitled to that because they've been bullied in the past or they've been victimized in the past or their ancestors were. But that's not an excuse. It's not a good enough excuse. It's not, you cannot be allowed to do that.
So whereas Israel in based on every single real true historical fact and not propaganda, not anti-Semitic nonsense, Israel has not allowed the bullying of the Holocaust, the bullying of Jews over many, many centuries to have it act in a dishonorable, unethical, immoral way. Could there possibly be a more moral fighting force in the history of the world than the IDF? The IDF has had the opportunity to wipe out its enemies for at least 46 years. It could easily wipe out with a snap of its fingers all of its enemies. But because of the residual damage and collateral damage that that would cause to innocent civilians, it doesn't do that. And never has. And so... That alone is just the one argument, but there are many other arguments. I know for those of you who have been in the IDF, that you could detail much better than I, the many, many rules of engagement, the many, many restraints that we put, that Israel puts on its soldiers to be as, as, as ethical and moral as possible in a way that no other country has ever even attempted. None. So, whereas Israel has not allowed that bullying to turn it into a dishonorable, immoral country, so many others have. And China has, and again, not, I'm not castigating the entire Haredi community, but when it comes to welfare and when it comes to their lack of service in the military in Israel, they are not acting honorably. And they are using the bullying of the past as the, as the reason and excuse for it, and it's not. Because not everyone has to succumb to that. I've just noticed that everyone who does succumb to it is because of that reason. And this is why Jews in this country... And this is why every really, everybody in this country should be, understand what's going on getting back to China. Understand what's going on now with China. And yes, this is why people really need to support President Trump and his dispute with China. And to his credit, Democrat Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, has said as much. Just this month, has told, he sent a message, public message to President Trump to stand tough and stay, hang, hang tough on the Chinese. Give Ch- Senator Schumer a lot of credit here. He's been a troublemaker and has been one of the crazy anti-Trump force leaders for a long time. But on this issue, he, he stepped up and said the right thing. So I give him a lot of credit for that. And Jews and Americans should, should follow, his, should follow his, 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 his message and back the president on this. Because the Chinese are acting dishonorably in every way possible. And I'm not even going to get into what they do to their own people. I mean, the suppression that the Chinese impose on, the, on their own people is beyond the pale. No, it's not death camps like we saw with the Nazis, but we have to be careful as Jews not to judge every country based on that metric. If someone is better than the Nazis, they still don't deserve a medal, okay? <laughs> the Japanese were marginally better than the Nazis in, in, in the way that they acted in World War II. They don't deserve a medal. And the Chinese are not acting in any honorable way towards their own people or others. And the bullying that they... And, and, and the victimization that they endured under Japan and before that under Britain and other foreign countries is not an excuse. It's not how it works. It's, it, I, it is how it works, sadly, as far as, predict, as the predictable actions that people take and countries take. But it's not allowed. And China will continue to this, this, this kind of behavior until somebody comes and tells them, like President Trump has, that they have a better future for themselves if they stop with this nonsense. If they stop stealing if they stop moving out of, of, of deals that they make and, 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 and slithering away from deals that they make and stop bribing people. And it is time to get behind the president on this. It is time to get behind the United States on this. 
And it is time to get behind countries like Israel that act in a moral way. And for people who live in Israel and support Israel, like Orthodox Jews, should also try to follow that example. This is Jake Novak. This has been Nachum Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.